Welcome to C's for Creepy. My name is Elise. And my name's Courtney. Join us every week as we discuss our favorite true crime and paranormal stories. From A to Z. Hi, welcome to our show. I'm Courtney. My name's Elise. And this is our first episode of C is for Creepy, where we're going to talk to you about true crime and paranormal we're gonna have an episode every monday tuesday every tuesday and hopefully you enjoy our show we're gonna start off with a bit about ourselves i am courtney i am 26 and we are from canada so i'm also 26 also from canada uh courtney and i've been really good friends for quite a few years and we both share a love of the creepy we've actually known each other for like 21 years i know i know God, that makes me feel old. (laughs) Just a little bit. This will keep us young. So what do you have for me today? So we are going to be telling our stories every week in alphabetical order. Uh, This is the first episode, so that means we're going to start with A, which this week I'm going to cover Axe Murder. Holy shit. Uh, Okay. Yeah. yeah, coming in hot. Um, so, Merriam-Webster advises that both Axe and Axe, so A-X-E and A-X, are both correct. However, E is the most popular version of the spelling. So, who knows why words are spelled how they are, but I thought that was a fun fact. Um, in case you're not aware... Axes are a multi-purpose tool used to cut wood, used by lumberjacks to fell timber, and also used as a weapon in ceremonial and other symbiology in ancient tribes. So like different uh, rituals and such. Cool. Yeah. In medieval times, axes were a weapon of choice for battles on foot, given the weight and power behind the blows. So it was really good hitting armor because, like, it wouldn't get stuck. You could get in semi-close range, and it would just decimate your foe. I don't know about you, but getting an axe out of anything is not a fun time. <laughs> no. no. Axes are... Not something to be trifled with. Um, in fact, there's a study done, a review of weapon choice in violent and sexual crimes written by Paul Dawson and Alistair Eden Goodwell. They suggest that the use of a weapon such as an axe is more common is more common than a tool used to commit a crime. It's also used to facilitate fear in victims showing clear intent for great harm and increased damage potential. So it's not just about, you know, oh, I'm going to hurt. Like, it's really going to cause They're major coming for damage. You. Yeah. Like, there's no coming back from that. I guess not. No. <laughs> so the case that I'm going to cover, there's... <coughs> some very strong warnings like in regard to race there's it's a case from the past where there's a lot of uh, incorrect terminology yes that and just um general racial issues gonna be discussed tonight okay so i'm covering the serving girl annihilator it was 
well, they were an unidentified serial killer operating between 1884 and 1885 in Austin, Texas. So some aliases include the Austin Axe Murderer and Midnight Assassin, which... That's a the midnight ro- assassin. <laughs> right. That's a little romantic. I don't know. I'm not a fan of the laughs one, but like if know. I was going, I would want to be the axe murderer right? or the axe man, not the midnight assassin. Especially like getting into the crimes, like uh, it's just icky. <laughs> We're not romanticizing it. No, okay. absolutely not. Um, so there was eight murderers that took place three years before Jack the Ripper and eight years before H.H. Holmes at the Chicago World Fair, making this perpetrator one of the first serial killers recorded like in any sort of uh, Western culture. It's pretty interesting, actually. So to set the scene, Austin was now becoming a booming modern town with a population of about 14,500 people, so more than doubling size in just two decades prior. There was many businesses such as restaurants, an opera house, and a capitol building under construction. While considered a backwater area in the growing population did allow for anonymity. There was racial integration in parts of the city where African-American and Caucasian people worked and lived together. Racism was incredibly prevalent in the state with the KKK, Ku Klux Klan, being very active and there being recorded attacks against women of color in their homes the year before the murders took place. The police force had 12 officers under its employ and of course, Police investigation was still in its infancy. Um, they had 12 officers? T- 12 whole officers under the employ. And like I said, the, like the population doubled in those few years. So I c- so nobody decided, hey, we might need some more people? <laughs> no? <Nah>. Nah. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. Good planning. Right. Um, so to preface, there isn't that much known about the victims, like their personal lives or their history. Um, that's definitely due to the fact that not only were they women, but they were women of color. So as according to ServantGirlsMurders.com, most of these victims would have most likely lived their lives in historical anonymity had this tragedy not happened. And let's not forget this. This is the 1800s. Record keeping wasn't great to begin with, but like I said, their uh, ethnicity and their, you know, being women didn't help. Like, there wasn't much known, no records. That's sad. It is. It's very sad. So, to start with, uh, the first victim was Molly Smith. She was born in Virginia in 1857 and had moved to Texas early in the 1870s. She worked for the Rogers household as a domestic servant for a time. It seemed Molly moved between Waco and Austin in the early 1800s, but had met her boyfriend Walter Spencer in Waco during that time. A few months prior to her death, Molly had been working at the home of Frank Woodburn in Chestnut Street, but had moved on. When she died, she had been employed by Walter Hall on West Pecan Street. 
I really love the names of all of these streets. I would love to live on Pecan Street. Right? Like, it's just like... I'd feel bougie. Right? Like, hey, all I live on Pecan Street. Not just Pecan Street, West Pecan. That means that there's got to be an East Pecan. Like... Ooh, East Pecan. <laughs> oh, I bet they're rivals. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, maybe. Okay, so at the time of her death, she Molly Smith was 25, and she was living with her boyfriend, Walter Spencer. So on the evening of December 30th, 1884, while sleeping in their beds, they were brutally attacked. Spencer was knocked unconscious and suffered from head wounds. Molly had been attacked with an axe and suffered large gaping wounds to her head. After the initial attack, the perpetrator dragged Molly from her bed to the backyard, leaving a trail of blood and an axe at the scene of the crime. Molly's body was found in the morning, raped and murdered. He just left her boyfriend? Yeah, he just left. Like, he wasn't the main target. Obviously, Molly was. He just needed him out of the way, right? So... Once he was unconscious, he was able to take Molly. I am horrified. Right. Well, I think it's the fact, too, that he's breaking into people's houses. Like... Oh, that gives me the chills. Right? (laughs) So, the second murder victim was Eliza Shelley. Newspapers described Eliza as a woman of good character and a devoted wife and mother. Eliza worked as a cook for the Johnston family... She was a mother of three and was 30 years old at the time of her death. She was murdered with an axe while asleep in bed May 7, 1885. Her small children witnessed the crime of their mother's death, but they were not able to give eyewitness accounts. Eliza's body had been moved from bed but not taken outside, like molly's was this motherfucker right. killed their mom and they watched i mean he could have attacked them which i feel would have been even worse this whole but, thing's just not okay no no it's <laughs> awful it's absolutely awful so he didn't wait as long between attacks so his next victim was uh, only two weeks after Eliza. So there was like a huge gap before, and now he's just escalating super quickly. On May 22nd, Irene Cross was stabbed with a knife repeatedly. Irene had shared a room with a young nephew and was a widow. Her nephew, Douglas, age 8, was able to describe his describe his aunt's attacker he described the attacker and this is a quote these are not my words a big chunky negro man barefoot with his pants rolled up newspapers reported it looked like irene had been scalped so like how did they tie the two together if she was stabbed and the other people were axed so I haven't really gotten to the evidence so much okay. yet. So there is a tie-in with footprints left behind at the scene that matches the other uh, that matches the other scenes. Also, who's walking around barefoot? That's well, that's how you get like blisters and warts. It also makes you quiet, 
right? Like that's added stealth. He's he's breaking into <laughs> slippers. It's the 1800s. I'm sure they knitted slippers. I'm sure they did. But <laughs> can you imagine cleaning blood out of your slippers every time? Oh, I'd just leave them at the scene. <laughs> just eat. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> oh man. Um, the next attack was August 30th when the axe murderer struck it again. His next victims were Rebecca and Mary Rainey. Rebecca was age 50 and Mary was aged 11. Uh, Rebecca was Mary's mother. This is his youngest victim and it's awful. It's, um, it's just awful. The attacker broke into their home at night, bludgeoning Rebecca with an axe. Um, He then dragged young Mary outside to a bathhouse where he raped and brutally murdered her, um, both with an axe. And he also um, stabbed a metal spike into her ear. Rebecca, the mother, did survive the attack, but young Mary was killed. Do you really survive that? I mean, I I couldn't That's imagine. Horrible. I couldn't imagine. Um, the next victims were a couple, Gracie Vance and Orange Washington. They were both killed from axe wounds to the head September 28th. Gracie had been moved to the backyard, raped, and had significantly more devastating blows to her head, unlike George. So, like, time and time again, we're seeing the main victims are just being absolutely um there's just more overkill attacks is he raping them after he's murdered them i don't think after he's murdered him but definitely after the first few blows to incapacitate them like they can't fight back and then he's finishing the deal Ew. i know i know like and i never heard about this case either until we're doing the research for um axe murders for axe murders well yeah it's not something i've ever heard no no me neither so the last two murders took place the same day and they did break the pattern of attacking women of color and their significant others the last two were caucasian women named susan hancock and eula phillips susan was in her home on christmas eve 1885 sleeping in her daughter's bed when an intruder broke in and knocked her unconscious from a blow to the head he then dragged susan to the backyard where some reports say that he continued to attack her but the noise woke up susan's husband causing the attacker to flee susan died from her wounds three days later the same night, 17-year-old Eula Phillips was, was asleep next to her husband, James Phillips Jr. James was knocked unconscious, and Eula had also been struck by an axe, then taken to their backyard to be raped and eventually murdered. So let's get into the investigation and the reaction of Austin to all of these crimes. So let's, let's do that. <laughs> So, even by 19th century standards, these crimes were not at all handled well, putting aside the fact that forensics and DNA was not going to be used in criminal investigation for a hundred years, the investigation was sloppy. Fear was rampant, especially in the African-American community. 
There was outrage and demands for new leadership in the city. Um, editorials were encouraging citizens to roam the streets armed and ready to take, to take care of the annihilator since police seemed unable to do so. Now, it should be noted that... Sorry, I'm making sure the door is locked. Okay. <laughs> Talking about breaking in? Yeah, you know... <laughs> Okay, so let's remember it's the 18th century and serial killer wasn't a term used. So most of the press didn't associate this as one person. Like they didn't think that one person could be doing this. They were either blaming the spouses or they were thinking that groups of people were attacking them. Like let's remember it's the 1800s in Austin. But the one lady was a widow. Who... Who was her spouse? Well, that might not have been a spouse. It could have been a boyfriend that she was seeing. It was any sort of man in her life. And if it wasn't one of that, the police were looking at like gangs of people. They didn't think one person could be doing this or all of these crimes. Okay. 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 So like the papers were saying, how could one individual be this savage? And the papers were referring to monsters, demons, fiends. So plural. They really didn't believe that one person was doing this. But they were also giving this guy the light that like multi- no one person can do this. Right. So like they're inflating his ego. A little bit. Okay. A little bit. Yeah. Um, and they're, it's really sad, they're, but they were doing a lot of victim blaming because some of these women were living with boyfriends, which wasn't kosher at the time. So they were, figured that they were being, many speculated that the women were murdered as they were unmarried women, quote, living in sin, end quote. And this was the reason <laughs> that they were being targeted. <laughs> That's horrible. <laughs> Right? I know I'm laughing, but it's out of uncomfortability. (laughs) No, it's not good. No. Not good at all. So the crime scenes were all consistent in that a bloody axe or weapon was left behind and that the floor was covered in bloody footprints. I'm sorry. Who just has access to this many axes? So it's actually really interesting. Um, Axes are oftentimes used as a weapon of convenience because, like, in the 1800s, there was no furnaces. They were a weapon of convenience. I guess, yeah. Every house would have one. Pretty much, like, yeah. Like, it would be a barren day if I had to go and hunt down an axe. Yeah. I guess they don't have them at the stores. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, in my own house, <laughs> there, there isn't an axe to be had. Okay. Uh- <laughs> My husband definitely has many, many axes, but... (laughs) So I know where I'm coming if I need a surplus of axes. (laughs) Like, I might have a rusty hatchet in the shed. Oh, man. Sorry, continue. Um, So like I said, the floor was covered in bloody footprints... Shoes would have been taken off, like I mentioned earlier, to allow for stealth. And it should be noted that one foot only had four toes, making the prints very distinct. Police would use bloodhounds to track the scent behind, left from these prints, and rest whomever the dogs led them to. 
He probably only had four toes from unsafe axe usage. <laughs> That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> like, it would be karma. <laughs> um... Okay, so they also cut a floorboard from one of the scenes as there was a perfect bloody footprint found. Just That'll be relevant later. Okay. Okay. I got you. A four-toed footprint. Yes. Okay. So arrests were made in the hundreds, mostly of African-American males, and the interrogation techniques used were horrible. They were unlawful, and they were just... Just on par for the time of racism and exactly. Um, so they were like the men in interrogation were often beat and they were made threats threats of lynching, like just anything they could do to try and get a confession, anything they could do to try to get this person. But they were using dogs to track down like smells, so we we can see how it's going. Do we know what kind of dogs these were? Were they just like hunting dogs that somebody pulled off the street and they're like, you got a good sniffer? <laughs> I don't know, actually. They, uh, I mean, like, they were probably like some sort of hunting dog, but that's just speculation. Yeah, I mean, and now, did anybody think about the fact that, like, it's dark? Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a white man? No, no, they were. Nobody weren't believed that, that it. No. Okay. Uh, well,. We'll get we'll kind of get to that soon. Um, so, political pressure and poor police work were some of the reasons of the high arrests made. It seemed that police arrested the scores of people they did in hopes that one of them might turn out to be the killer. So, in the case of Eula Phillips, her husband James was arrested for her murder. And let's remember this is one of the two white couples, right? So, evidence included a f- bloody footprint at the scene, an admission by James that if he caught Eula being unfaithful to him, he would kill her himself. Like, okay, man. Okay, but what proof did they have that she was unfaithful? Right? Like, it's all hearsay. It's all. She's 17 and married with a kid. Like, let's be real. Yeah, okay. In court prosecution made James make a footprint, which he did, and it did not match the same left at the scene. But he was still convicted of her murder. But even if it did match, he lived there. Like, could he have not accidentally walked through the blood and left it in his own home? I agree. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm just getting enraged. (laughs) Like, what is this shenanigans? No. None of it is good. So his sentence was overturned after six months. So let's get to some theories about who the servant girl annihilator was. Did they ever catch? We'll get to it. Okay. Okay. So there's a theory that the servant girl annihilator and Jack the Ripper are the same person. Okay. One author, Shirley Harrison, wrote a book titled Jack the Ripper... Jack the Ripper, The American Connection, which speculates a cotton merchant named James Maybrick could be both killers. So I will be covering Jack the Ripper eventually, so I'm not going to get too deep into this theory, but it does suggest that Maybrick was in Austin on the dates that the Annihilator struck. But 
correct me if I'm wrong, but Jack the Ripper was in London. There was three years in between the crimes. That's more than enough time to take a boat over. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, like I said, that's just one of the theories. Okay. Another popular theory is that a Malaysian cook named Maurice, who worked at the Pearl House Inn, could have been the killer. The Pearl House Inn was close to the murders, and he was considered a suspect in Eula's death, but left Austin in 1886 of January, just weeks after her death. It should also be noted that Eula's death was the last in the servant girl killings, with Maurice leaving when the murder stopped. It could be considered suspicious. Could be. So now let's get to the most plausible theory. Um, the last theory is that a young African male man named Nathan Elgin was the killer. Elgin was shot by police after dragging a young woman out of a saloon. He had allegedly been beating and cursing at her while she screamed for help. Elgin, too, worked in the area as the cook, so just like geographically around where all the crimes took place and but how close really like with 12 police officers are they counting like you know a hundred kilometer square like as a close contact so let's not forget that this was like yeah it was the 1800s but this case has been like since looked at and they didn't really start to put together that it could be the same person until a few, like maybe the last 20, 25 years. Okay. They started using like the profiling and geographical profiling. Um, so like they used modern day techniques to come up with who could possibly be the killer. Okay. 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 So... Like I said, he was geographically around where all the different sites, scenes, where all the crime scenes were. And also, he had a foot with a deformity, having nine toes in total, which seemed to correspond to the prints left at the scene of the crimes, being shot in early 1886, and no other crimes being committed <laughs> afterwards. It is possible that he could have been the annihilator, but there is no way to know for sure. Like there, and like I did read different reports that suggested that the police there back then knew about it, but they didn't want to release anything. Like there's, it's definitely the most popular theory, but there's no way it'll ever be confirmed. That's horrible. Right? So, I'm done with that very dark story. I'm glad that, you know, we're able to talk about it now and shed some light. Like I said, I'd never heard about this and I've been listening to true crime stories for years. So, I'm glad that I was able to bring some light to a lesser known case. Yeah. I can't believe that's a lesser-known case. Right? Considering how dark it is. Yeah. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. That's what... I... I think I always get super uncomfortable when it has to do with, like, somebody breaking in and murdering me right. in my home right. while there's people here. Mm-hmm. And, like, 
don't know. I I count on my partner to protect me and <laughs> Right. And now they're the person like now they're considered the suspect. When they're they've been attacked. That too. That's a really good question, is like I wouldn't harm myself. No. No, you wouldn't. No. At least not to that extent. Mm-mm. Like to knock me unconscious with an axe? No. 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 You know, maybe stub my toe, but like <laughs> No. That's wild. Mm-hmm. So I have a story for you. Ooh, let's hear it. It doesn't get any lighter. Oh, good. Okay. So, I'm going to tell you my A is for asylum. Ooh. And we're going to do the Denver Lunatic Asylum. Okay. Have you ever heard of it? No. So, it's a doozy. I was really, like, horrified, actually, when I was reading into the history. Um, there is quite a bit of paranormal activity, but I think it would be best for me to like give you the history of the place before, just so it kind of flows. Okay. Um, the resources I used were the DanforStateHospital.org, uh, OnlyInYourState.com, Urban Exploration, Wonder How To, Danvers State Insane Asylum, FrightFind.com, and Wikipedia. Awesome. So I used all those to help me get all of this information. So, the history of the Danvers Luna, Denver Lunatic Asylum. Let's hear it. In 1874, construction began with the State Lunatic Hospital in Danvers, Massachusetts, opening May 1st, 1878. The original opening capacity of this hospital was 450 patients. This is, this is, uh, note this. Okay. (laughs) The first patient started arriving May 13th, 1878. A few years later, in 1898, the hospital was renamed Danvers Insane Asylum. Ooh. Or, sorry, Danvers Insane Hospital. Okay. I don't know if that's any better. Uh, not really, no. <sighs> the hospital expanded extensively to include more than just inpatient care. They had begun a school clinic to aid in determining mental deficiencies in children, which, you know what, that could be really good. Well, it's the 1800s, so I- I'm concerned about the level of care the children are getting. <sighs> this was just to aid in determining their mental state. <gasps> Okay. Okay. They also had training programs for nurses. Okay, that's cool. Pathological research laboratories. Okay. And the grounds had acres of farmland and livestock that could help the hospital be self-sustainable. That's cool. I thought so. Unfortunately, no number of niceties could hide the horrors that lurked inside the walls of this hospital. Uh Uh-oh. The hospital was known as the birthplace of the lobotomy. Ooh. With over 200 lobotomies performed on the grounds, the hospital also used shock treatments, which is also known as ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. Mm-hmm. It's a procedure done under general anesthesia in which small electrical currents are passed through the brain, intentionally triggering a brain seizure. ECT seems to cause changes in the brain chemistry that can quickly reverse symptoms of certain mental health conditions. Did it work on them, or were they just shocking people and hoping for the best? 
the latter. Oh, okay. I feel like shock treatments aren't allowed to be used today. I don't think so. At least not to change brain chemistry. No. No. Yeah. The hospital also used ice baths, illegal drugs. What kind of illegal drugs? It didn't specify. Okay. Unfortunately. Okay. Because I was like, ooh, 1800s, time to do some blow about your problems or i'm willing to bet you they weren't spending the money on the good stuff (laughs) it might have been some heroin (laughs) i mean yeah straight jackets psychosurgery do you know what that is no i don't know what that is it's a lobotomy of different parts of the brain oh hydrotherapy you know what hydrotherapy is i think i do Exposure of patients to baths or showers of warm water for an extended period of time. Ooh. No. Yeah. Um, so they got them all pruny. Oh, God. And then the one that doesn't sit the best with me is the insulin coma therapy. Okay. Placing psychotic patients in a hypoglycemic coma through administration of dangerously large doses of insulin. Well, what if the patients were diabetic? That would kill them. I know. Oh, that's awful. It doesn't get better. Okay. By the 1930s, the hospital started to suffer from severe overcrowding and lack of funding. Now renamed the Danvers State Hospital. Okay, wait. It was the Denver's Insane Hospital. Okay, yep, yep. So we just took the insanity out of all these practices. Jesus. For the next 40 years, the hospital continues to operate in these conditions with over 770 deaths. Oh my God. By the 1970s, the Department of Mental Health starts to deinstitutionalize the hospital and close the hospital in 1991. June 24th, 1992, the last patients and employees were transferred to different hospitals. Wow. That's heartbreaking. It is. And I know I was reading somewhere that they had over, like, 50% overcapacity. Oh, because it wasn't a big hospital to begin with. No, it wasn't. So, like, they did add some extensions to it. So, only near the closing of the asylum was it discovered to have small underground tunnels connecting the buildings. So, the way it was built was there was one main house, and then it, like, staggered back in wings. So, it was like a big V of buildings. Okay. Okay. And then they had tunnels connecting underground historians dated these tunnels to the original construction of the hospital meaning they were put in under the direction of the asylum's first administrator thomas kirkbride who was notorious in his methodology his tunnels have thought to have been constructed to keep more violent patients completely out of sight giving the asylum's upper levels a more sedate and dignified look as he preached to his infamous Kirkbride plan that he always referred to as a special apparatus for the care of lunacy. Oh my God. That's awful. Yeah. Like, okay, 
tunnels are cool like i want to find some secret tunnels that's awesome but the reason why they're built jesus that's awful right kirkbride's philosophy behind the staggered wings was to allow individual corridors open to sunlight and air ventilation through both ends which he believed aiding in healing the mentally ill okay which i guess you know they used to say fresh air was a cure for tuberculosis so that's true yeah it's not too far of a reach to think that sunlight could cure the mentally ill okay but they're people not plants so (laughs) like they're putting them in water and giving them sunlight jesus that's not gonna work i agree (laughs) i i fully agree with that but again we now have modern science true very true So, in 2005, the property was sold to a real estate developer, and a series of connecting buildings were torn down. In their place has gone a small collection of condo apartments, now named Bradley Danvers Apartments. Oh my god, there's apartments there? Right? Like, who thought that would be a good idea? Like, oh my god. Like, there's 700 people dead. Were they buried on the property? Of course they were. Oh god. (laughs) Why wouldn't they be? (laughs) Fun fact, there is two, not one, but two cemeteries. Because they had so many people dying here. Holy shit. Yeah, it is wild. That's fucked. That's... Yeah. So. Now there's condos. Nice. Apartments, yes. Not all buildings were totally demolished, though. As the underground tunnels prevented this. So, like, it would make uneven ground, so you can't put... Yeah. Oh, back behind the grounds is the Asylum Cemetery. The developers have not constructed anything new on that part of the land. So that's a lovely view from your apartment. Yeah. I also feel like if they built something on that, there is no hope. Well, I mean, just having it beside, that can't be great. No. No, it can't be. (laughs) So, this is a location that served for the 2001 horror film, Session 9. Oh, I don't think I've seen that one. I watched it a long time ago. And I believe it's about a mentally ill man who was being recorded. And a bunch of teenagers were going through the hospital and found these tapes and listened to them. Oh, if it's the same story that I'm thinking of. Okay. I guess we'll have to find out. Yeah. To confirm. Yeah. <laughs> so, now on to the spooky paranormal activity. Ooh, ghosts. As the hospital sat abandoned, many paranormal investigations and ghost hunters flocked to the hospital to explore the haunted site. Okay. Like, same. Yeah. I would want to do that. <laughs> Many groups started off by doing walkthroughs of the abandoned asylum. Most instantly, the audible cries and moans of the spirits said to haunt to be haunting the asylum were heard. Okay. Like, could you imagine walking down and just hearing someone crying? Oh, hell no. Hell no. Mm-mm. I turn around and leave. Right? EVPs, electric electronic voice phenomena, captured are a spirit saying, I live here, Ugh. and I am warning you. Ooh, okay, I'm out. 
<laughs> so while the buildings were being torn down and made into apartments mysterious fires started to break out what like that wasn't cue enough to be like mm. that's got to be pretty powerful spirits if they're setting fires right and like you'd think that when the first one burned down yeah you'd be like okay insurance money let's go somewhere else right but no apparitions of patients have been seen Okay. Like full body apparitions? Oh, yeah. Oh. Like gowns and all. Oh, my God. Yeah. Noted that there's always an eerie atmosphere on the ground. I mean, fair. Like, like there's obviously. a cemetery in the distance. and <laughs> Right? There's also flickering lights, unexplained footsteps, which like, I don't know if you remember our last house. We used to hear unexplained footsteps yeah. all the time. Oh, and like, No noping out of there not today Mm -hmm. no thank you so like i couldn't imagine living in those apartments and just constantly hearing them so like to be a bit of a skeptic is it ghostly footsteps or is it just really bad sound um not like the insulation just being bad to solid question i mean just like throwing that out there (laughs) i'd like to think that's the case hopefully (sighs) so this next one doors opening and closing on their own okay so probably not uh (laughs) building flaws with that screaming banging and crying oh god no yeah the cemeteries are a hotbed of paranormal activity (laughs) apparitions are very common Mm -hmm. yep saw that coming but, you know, let's let's think about building something on that. Mm. Nope. So ghost hunters and former hospital workers have been seen... Or, sorry. Ghost hunters and former hospital workers have seen Thomas Kirkbride's ghosts floating through the underground tunnels. That was the original... Builder. Yeah. Yeah. Original builder, original founder. He was... The first administrator. Okay. So he was like really hands-on. Yeah, but I didn't find anything about him dying there. That's so. weird. Well, maybe just him. But maybe he leases the tunnels. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, kind of like a, uh, oh, what is it? Summer home. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm going to haunt you during the summer and winter I'll spend at my grave. Mm. Right? Jeez. So, people who live in the apartments now claim to hear moans and screams at night, theorized to be from the spirits still tied to the land. Mm. Many of Danvers police officers have responded to complaints of the terrifying noises at night, only to find an empty lot, but night after night the screams are said to remain heard. Oh. I would nope out of there. Yeah, like screaming is not a selling point, right? Mm-mm. Maybe screaming goats, but definitely not <laughs> screaming apparitions. <laughs> screaming ghosts instead of goats. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so here's the spooky ooky one. Ooh. Most noteworthy. Gerald Richards was a hospital administrator there in the 1940s and early 1950s. Due to the nature of his job, he lived on the premises with his wife and three children. Okay. Now, I get that, but 
if my spouse ever took a job at a lunatic asylum mm. and then was like you and our children can live on site Mm-mm. no mm. thanks i you, love you you can live on site i'll stay at home i'll see you on weekends yeah you can like, commute right especially with like three kids mm-hmm. well especially there there's violent patients there yeah mm-hmm. patients yeah well i'm like do those tunnels go to your separate house? Oh I don't know. The tunnels that we kept the scary patients in? No, thank you. But onwards. One of his children, Geraldine Lavasier, has been one of the only people ever to step forward and verify that a ghost was seen in the administrator's quarters. Oh. Do, do, do. In the quarters where she lived with her family as a child, she had memories of playing in the attic with her brother and sister. However, the attic soon became off-limits that were self-imposed after seeing the spirit of an elderly woman in the corner of the darkened attic scowling at her and her siblings. Oh, hell no. Mm-mm. I don't blame her for self-imposing that restriction, Jesus. Yeah, that was not the only encounter. With this particular apparition, as she claimed that she was awoken several times a night by the same scowling spirit as it would slowly pull the cover straight off her bed. Oh my god, stay in the attic, please and thank you. Like, get away from my bed. Hard pass. Oh, hell no. Hard pass, yeah. So, So that's my story. That was a great story. I would know about so fast. Screams. You know what? You can scowl at me in my attic all you want, but do not touch the covers. Oh, heck no. Mm -mm. No, thank you. No. Oh, man. Okay, so that about wraps us up. Thanks for listening to our first episode of C is for Creepy. You can check us out next week. We'll be covering B... So I guess you'll have to tune in to find out what topics that's going to include. Thanks for tuning in to C is for Creepy. We put out weekly episodes every Tuesday going through the creepy alphabet. Check out our website at acast.com slash C is for Creepy. Or on Facebook at C is for Creepy Podcast. Or on Instagram at C for Creepy Podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, please email us at cforcreepy at gmail.com. Artwork done by Alexis Daly. Check out her work at lexxa underscore artwork on Instagram. See you next week. Bye.